0: So uh, I get to uh, do a mammoth thing today. I've got to do something pretty extraordinary. It's going to require supernatural ability because I've got to finish Ezra Nehemiah. And that means going through chapters 7 to 13. That's six chapters. So it's going to be a real sprint this morning. So get your seatbelts on. And are we sitting comfortably? Because here we go. So the story so far, the Jewish nation is making its way back from exile. Things look like they're almost back to normal. So Zerubbabel has built a new altar right where the old one used to be, although it's not quite as posh as the old one. But hey, worship has been reestablished right at the heart of their community. Ezra's built a new temple. It's not as big as Solomon's temple. And not nearly as fancy, but they were on a budget, but at least they've got somewhere to meet now. It's just a shame that God didn't turn up like he did for Solomon. And then there's this new city, a new Jerusalem, which again isn't quite what it was before. It's a bit smaller than the old one, at this point anyway, but it's theirs. And that's great. Nehemiah and the team have worked really hard and done a good job. And so by the end of chapter 7, all of the walls have been rebuilt, the gates have been rehung, and a new governor appointed to run the city, Hananiah, who's Nehemiah's brother, and so it's all ready to go. They just need some people to fill it. But that's no problem. As soon as the houses are rebuilt, the people start uh, coming in droves, bearing out the maximum. If you build it, they will come. And they come in droves, 42,360 of them, plus their servants, staff, horses, camels, donkeys. So they come and they're ready to start work straight straight away. And before long, Jerusalem was again the home of the Jewish people, a thriving and bustling place to be, not just physically and economically, but spiritually too. And, you know, as I've read these chapters Uh, of the last few weeks, chapters 8 to 12, I can't help but think that it reads a bit like a journal of one of the great revivals of the past. It has all the same characteristics. Great preaching, worship, confession of sin, people resolving to live differently. And I think these chapters have the scent of revival about them. And that's what I want us to get caught up with today, to catch something of the atmosphere, because, boy, don't we need something like that again today? Don't we need a revival, a move of God? And, you know, I think God has something like that for us in the coming days. And how many years have we longed and talked for something like that? But I think it's coming, and I think we need it too, and I think the world is desperate for it. We need A revival. So let's get caught up with revival today. Is that okay with you? Uh, So I want to take you through these chapters quite quickly. I'm going to retell the story, and I'm not going to be able to read it all to you. You're going to have to read that for yourself later. But I want us to try and catch a scent of what God is doing here, and allow it to stir our own hearts for our own people and around the world. The first thing we see. So I've just done chapter seven, by the way. Now chapter eight. What we see in chapter 8 is this great coming together. This first verse in chapter 8, it just so reminds me, for me anyway, maybe I'm on something here, I don't know, but it's just so reminiscent for me of Acts. All the people, it says, came together as one. It just sounds like the upper room to me, all of one mind and one heart in one place, no longer scattered, but drawn together around this one great purpose, to listen to Ezra. This great teacher of the word reading and expanding the book of the law of Moses. And it says that he read it aloud from daybreak until noon, verse 3, in the presence of men and women and others who would understand, which presumably means the children were there too and the servants. And it says that all the people listened attentively to the book of the law with Ezra standing above them on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And the people stood there for hours and they responded to what was expounded by lifting their hands and crying Amen! And Amen! And then they bowed down it says and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground in verse 6. That was their response. They heard the word of God and they bowed down. They bowed, and Do you know what, what I wonder as I read this? I wonder if they couldn't help but bow down. It says, literally, the phrase is that they fell down onto the ground. They had no choice, no other option to fall on their faces before the Lord. They were undone in his presence because the word of God had such an impact on them because of their sin. And I say this because of what we see in the next few verses Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the priests around them have to stop the people from mourning and weeping as they hear these words in verse 9. People has to co- uh, Nehemiah has to compel them, say, don't grieve, don't grieve in verse 10, not now, not now. And The Levites have to calm all the people saying, be still, this is a holy day, don't grieve, verse 11. The people were so under this weight of the burden of their sin That they needed this great reassurance from their leaders at this time. Such was the burden that came upon them from what they'd heard. Such was the weight of the conviction of their sin. The people literally fell on their faces and cried out until their peace was restored. And then the joy broke out. The joy broke out. There was a revival of joy. It says because now the people understood it wasn't the time to mourn and weep, but it was the time to celebrate, to eat and drink because of what they'd heard. And so it says they celebrated. And boy, didn't they celebrate seven, no, eight days eating, drinking, dancing. (laughs) I would love to have been at that party. Nehemiah tells us that from the days of Joshua son of Nun he was the guy that led them into the promised land in the first place until that day the Israelites had not celebrated like this and their joy it says was great. Verse 17 it was great. This was a revival of joy an outpouring of praise and celebration that their time of scattering was over. Their exile was complete. That God had overlooked their sin and brought them back into the promised land. That place of God's favor and blessing. Yes, they'd forgotten the law. They'd broken God's commands in ways they could never imagine. But it wasn't, this wasn't the time for that. This was not to be their starting place. It's like God says, I want you to come to me first. Come to me and celebrate. Come to me and praise and worship. And then we'll talk about your sin. But come to me first. And for us too, you know, we come before a throne of grace. That's the pattern. Hebrews tells us that we're to come boldly. We're not to creep into his presence. We don't send our sin on ahead of us before we even get there. We don't stand outside his courts mourning and grieving and agonizing over our faults and failings. Because, you know, if we were to do that, there's no guarantee we'd ever cross the threshold of his presence. We'd just disqualify ourselves. And so first we have to celebrate and to praise Come before him with singing, the psalmist says. Come with rejoicing and thanksgiving. Come with a loud voice and give him praise. But come, but come so he can forgive you and cleanse you and heal you and set you free. Do you know, I don't know, I'm feeling quite emotional at this moment because I I don't know if you've yet imagined what it's going to be like just for us to get back together. What's it going to be like when we all come back together? What will the atmosphere be? But you know, I see a revival. I see a revival of joy coming to us. I see an outpouring of joy out of our own time of exile and scattering, an outpouring of thanks and praise, never mind what else we're facing in our nation at that time. (laughs) Or this world. I think the oil of joy is being poured out even now poured out as an antidote to the mourning and despair that we see in a broken world right now. Do you see it? An anointing of joy. Joy first. Joy first. Joy first. And then this is what comes next. This is another great characteristic of any move of God, it's the confession of sin. We've done chapter 8, we're now into chapter 9. So chapter 9, verses 1 to 37, is the confession of sin. After the gathering, after the thanksgiving, all the celebration has gone, and the Israelites reconvene in an atmosphere of fasting and prayer, humbling themselves before God, separating themselves to him. And it says in verse 2 that they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord for a quarter of a day. And then they spent the other quarter in confession and worshipping the Lord their God. Now I don't know if you can get this, but this is what they did. They returned to the exact same spot that they'd been convicted in. They returned to that place. They stood there in the same place where they were told, don't mourn, don't grieve, but celebrate. They were told to return to that place. Now, from that very same place, they confessed their sin. From that place of celebration, from the place where they're told not to mourn, now confess your sin. Get this, it's out of the place of celebration. It's out of the place of standing on the ground of praise that we confess our sins. Because, you see, confession is not so much about our failure. That's just going to happen. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. But it's about the revelation of his grace. And that is a place of celebration. You know, forgiveness is a relief, not a burden. True forgiveness is about having the burden lifted, not getting the punishment I deserve, getting away with it, getting the debt cancelled, which is why, do you know, I wish I could march around. I find it so hard to stand still right now, but it's why Christians, you know, should be the happiest and most joy-filled people in the whole earth. Because they get to walk free. They get to live in the goodness of God in the goodness and the manifestation of his grace. He should be the happiest person in the world. And so it says that the people confessed their sins on that place. And they poured out their hearts in worship in verse 3. They cried out with loud voices, presumably because of their sin. I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like confessing your sin with a loud voice in a group of people. Lord, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done the other. But that's what they did. They confessed the sin. They just wanted to get it off their chests. And then it says that they worshipped him. They stood up. They stood up. They didn't sit around moping. They stood up, and they praised the Lord, who is from everlasting to everlasting. I say that because... You know, when we come from that place of confession, often we just, we're morbid. We we moan. We're we're so serious because we've sinned. But that's not the picture that we see here. They stood up. They got up. And then they started to praise the Lord. They confessed their sin on the floor from that place of celebration. And then they stood up and praised the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting, which means nothing has changed. He's not changed. It goes on to say, Blessed be your glorious name. Here's a flavor of their praise. And may it be exalted, your name above all. Uh, all blessing and praise, because you alone are the Lord, verse 6. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everyone, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And so it goes on for pages and pages like this. Recite. Do you know the confession is that much... The praise is that much. The confession is that much. The praise is that much. Pages and pages reciting the goodness of God throughout the generations. That's verses 7 to 12. Standing on his faithfulness and mercy. Extolling his compassion. Celebrating his covenant of love towards them. That's verses 13 to 32. Secure in the knowledge that he is the God who forgives sin. That's who he is, and he's not changed. He's still the same. You know, this great confession of sin, this huge body of people, 42,000 of them confessing their sin, was not a morbid affair. It wasn't a morbid affair. They confessed their sins to God, and then they worshipped and praised him. They rejoiced in his love and mercy, and they stood together on their collective history of God's faithfulness. And these people weren't even Christians. They weren't even Christians. Jesus hadn't died yet. The manifestation of his grace, the one who so loved the world, father who gave his only son, hadn't been revealed to them yet. And yet this is how they dealt with their sin. So how is it that we get so stuck in our sin? How do we get so bound up in condemnation and failure? Why is it that we find it so hard to admit when we're wrong to God? Just And just to get it off our chest was so secretive, even about our sin. you know, my brothers and sisters, this isn't the model of heaven, but it's the model of earth, which is about self-reliance. This is the model of hell, which is about condemnation, both of which together combine to say, I need to earn my forgiveness. Unless I self-flagellate and mourn for days and punish myself, I can't be forgiven and I can't be set free. But that is not the Bible model. That is not the revelation of the God who forgives sin. You know, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is instantly faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's instant It's instant. Confess your sin and now receive forgiveness. Get up. Get up and celebrate. Get up and worship him. Don't stay in the place of depression because I've messed up again. That's just you saying, I'm not a very good person. I'm not good enough. That's not how God sees it. It's the revelation of his grace. Confess your sins and then go sin no more we get to walk free. We get to celebrate that our sins are truly forgiven. So do you need some of that today? Do you need some of that today? Why don't you just take a moment right where you are now and just confess your sin to him? Let's just get it off your chest. Just get it off your chest. Stop carrying it all the time. Stop feeling that connection to it. Say, Lord, I confess, I did it wrong. I shouldn't have looked at that on the internet. Lord, I confess, I got it wrong. I shouldn't have had that attitude. Lord, I confess, I got it wrong. I shouldn't have done this or that, or I should have done this or that. Lord, I confess it to you. I agree with you. I agree with you. And there is the revelation of his grace. You get to walk free. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So it says that the people confessed their sins, but it wasn't a morbid affair. Because how many of you know that it feels really good to be forgiven? (laughs) Don't be burdened anymore. Receive forgiveness. And then this is where it led them to next. That's chapter 8. We're now into chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 38. And we're even going to slip into chapter 10, verses 38 to 39. It's about the rededication of our lives to God. That's what the people did. They rededicated themselves to God because, you see, sin distances us from God. We, we are out of relationship. We're walking our own way. But forgiveness does the opposite. It restores relationship and it draws us close. And when we come to that place of restoration, reconciliation, we don't want to do things our own way anymore. We we don't want to walk in our own ways anymore. We want to be close to God because it's good to be close to God. It's a nice feeling to be walking close to God and not to have anything between us. So it says that the people made a covenant with God. It says they returned to Him and resolved to live differently for the rest of their lives. How wonderful is that? And they took it incredibly seriously. Nehemiah tells us they all signed up to a binding agreement. That's the whole population. Signed up all the leads, it's a list of names, huge list of names of people who bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. That's verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 29, including this. We won't neglect the house of the Lord. That's 1039. We're coming In other words, we're we're going to come back to church as well. And we're going to get really stuck into church. We're going to go to all the meetings, even the prayer meeting. And we're going to tithe and everything. And they all signed up to this. I mean, do you remember those wonderful days of recommitment and rededication? Perhaps you need one today. Do you remember them from over the years? I, I must have gone to the front of every appeal that was possibly available to me at every conference as a teenager, particularly. And then it was the in-between times that was a bit of a problem because I kind of slipped back until the next conference, you know, the next youth event or whatever. And and then I would doubt in those in-between times, the responses that I'd made in those times of rededication. And, And, of course, for the people, I mean, it was all over the top, really, wasn't it? I mean, absolutely impossible. How could they ever do what no previous generation had ever done and stick to the law of God? But they signed this thing in blood, as it were. It's probably a bit of mass hysteria brought on by the revival, maybe. Or perhaps it was a bit of crowd pressure and manipulation by those strong, charismatic leaders. I mean, have you heard Ezra preach? It's incredible. You just, you do anything for him. And Nehemiah, I mean, the authority that that guy wields, you're just scared of him. You know, if he comes near you, you just, I'd say anything, I'd sign anything if Nehemiah was around. Surely these responses can't be real. I mean, how many lives have actually been changed in this revival? Do they stay changed? That would test whether it's a genuine revival or not. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are said in times of revival and renewal and the moving of the Spirit. I've even said them myself. It's just mass emotion. It was said on the day of Pentecost, the cynics then said, ha, they're drunk, it'll never last. Wesley and Whitfield, when they preached, The accusation was, these guys are just manipulating the crowds. The Welsh revival had their critics. So did Billy Graham. Mass hysteria, Toronto, and so on. Actually, as I've read about the revivals of the past, I've begun to realize that the cynical response, particularly from the religious people, it seems, is one of the hallmarks of a genuine revival. (laughs) So I want to just say to you, don't doubt these early salvation responses from years ago. Don't doubt those early encounters with God. Don't doubt them, because although you might wonder about them, he never does. You know, emotions and everything that go with them, it doesn't make any difference to him, because he takes us at our word anyway. <laughs> he, he's faithful. He will be faithful to whatever you confess with your mouth. And he will show himself faithful to you. He will show himself faithful to your children who made those early steps as well. And he will be faithful to our children's children also and the promises that he has made. I don't know who the cynics were in Nehemiah's time. I bet there were some. I bet Sam Ballot was hanging around somewhere or Tobiah, one of those guys. But the people didn't take any notice. Rather, in chapters 11 and 12, there you go, that's chapters 11 and 12 done. <laughs> It showed how they streamed in from everywhere, moving in to their new homes, starting new businesses and occupations. And before you know it, the city is absolutely buzzing. There was great celebrations. These people know how to celebrate. You know, musicians from all around the region, as the walls of the city were finally dedicated at this foundational turning point in Israel Israel's history at the end of chapter 12 you can see that in verses 27 to 47 but if you know the book of Nehemiah you know that that's not quite the end of the story because Nehemiah has one further chapter to go chapter 13 and this is actually chapter 13 is actually about 12 or 15 years later when Nehemiah has to step back in and take the reins because a whole lot of problems have returned a period that I would characterize as reform, not revival. Let me just go through the problems, but I'm afraid it makes quite depressive reading. First, we see that the people have started mixing with other nations again, adopting some of their cultures and practices in verses 1 to 3. We might say that worldly thinking has got back into the church, and some of them had again married pagan Women, and as a result, he had raised pagan children. That's in 25 to 27, something that Ezra had dealt with, if you remember, uh, 10, 25 years before. That was in Ezra chapter 10. And Nehemiah took decisive and violent behavior, actually. Um, It says here that I contended with them and struck them. I struck them and pulled out their hair. In verse 25, I was thinking about this as another way of church leadership. Perhaps we could introduce that. Uh, I mean, it sounds a bit extreme, but this is the kind of stuff that got them put into exile in the first place. And he was saying, you stupid people, don't you know what you're doing? You've just got yourself out of exile, and now you're going to go back in if you're not careful. So he pulled out their hair and decided that strong action was needed. That's, That's some reform, that is. That's strong reform. Second, The temple had been neglected, that's verses 4 to 14. People weren't going to church anymore. You know, they'd stopped paying their tithes, and so the priests had been forced to return to their secular jobs to survive. The temple storerooms were hired out and filled up with merchandise, meaning that there was no room anymore for the people's grain offerings and frankincense, even if they did want to worship. Well, Nehemiah just threw out all the merchandise and cleansed the rooms and reformed the temple. And third, the people were no longer observing the Sabbath rest and were working all hours, not leaving any time for family or worship, which is probably why the temple was being neglected. People were just working all the time. They were too busy, too busy working to worship. That's in verses 15 to 22. So Nehemiah introduces further reforms, which means he put some guards on the gates of the city so that trading couldn't be done on a Sunday anymore. Well, Sabbath, because he said that was dishonoring the city. Nehemiah institutes all these strong reforms pleading throughout the chapter that God will remember him for his good deeds, spare him for the faults of the people. He says, Lord, I've tried my best, he said, I really have. I tried my best, but I failed. But remember me anyway. And do you know when you read these reforms in chapter 30, it's got such a different flavor to the revival of 15 or so years ago. The heartfelt response of the people where they're so eager to sign up to change of life, change of heart. Uh, Because these were just reforms, not revival. This is external conformity rather than inward change that comes from the heart. And actually, chapter 13 is uh, kind of an anticlimax, a great anticlimax at the end of the book. And it's how the Old Testament comes to a close. But of course, we know what none of the people then knew, that this wasn't it. That wasn't the end. That the rebuilding of the altar, the temple and the city, that wasn't it but the Christmas was coming, uh, that the fulfillment of all the prophecies was just around the corner, that there was a baby about to be born that was going to change everything. Because, you know, the altar was only a preview of the perfect sacrifice that would ultimately once be made by one, for all sin at all time. The temple was an imperfect picture of a building made of people that would come, uh, 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 made up of every tongue, tribe, and, and nation called the church, the body of Christ. The city was just a foretaste of a new kingdom that was coming, where there Jesus was the king. And the world is literally going to look different because of it. It all pointed to Jesus, Isaiah Israel's Messiah, who would come and save the people from his sin. But of course, they did didn't know that at the time. They just did the best that they could. Nehemiah didn't have that revelation. He tried his best, but he found that rules on their own don't work. Anybody found that? External conformity, threats, and discipline, they never work. They still don't. They still don't, because it all points to Jesus, (laughs) and he came to put a new heart in us. He came to change our lives from the inside out. But I want to just say this. this There's just one final lesson uh, from this, I think, that even this, even the fact that Jesus has now come and that we have this amazing, we live in the time of this wonderful era, we still need a revelation. Each of us still need our own personal revival and revelation. In fact, every generation needs its own revelation. Every generation does. That's kind of what Nehemiah shows us too. You know, our children cannot live on the revelation of their parents. Children can't live on the revelation of their parents. They need their own encounter. They need their own experience of God. You know, the fact that 15 years on, Nehemiah found that the people had lost something of the benefit of that amazing spiritual renewal shouldn't surprise us because that still happens today. You know, if you don't want a dead religion, we need a move of God in every generation. And this is why I think that we need a revival now. I think we do. I think we need a revival to bring in the next generation, to raise up the next round of apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for a new kind of church that God's going to do for future generations. Just because, you know, some of our young people have been to church and it's a charismatic church, which we think is the pinnacle of all revelation, is no guarantee of personal revelation. They need their own move of God. Young people, you need your own move of God, your own revelation. You need a revival in your generation. Each generation needs its own revelation, its own move of God, a fresh outpouring. And, you know, I think it's coming And I think the next one is going to be a big one, possibly one of the greatest outpourings the world has ever seen. I've been saying this for about 10 years now. But I don't know if you've noticed something, but God is up to something worldwide. God is doing something that has an international dimension. Have you realized that something and you could say, well, it's just a virus, but something has got the whole world's attention. Listen, only God can do that only God has the authority to call the whole world to attention. Only God does. I think something unprecedented is coming. You know, we're living in the days of the unprecedented. I think something unprecedented that's supernatural is coming to the whole world. I mean, perhaps, you know, I can just imagine, I can't see you, but I can just imagine some people kind of say, oh, revival again. We're talking about revival again. I'm so tired of hearing about revival and so fed up with praying for revival and not seeing much happen. Um, You're telling us you want us to start praying about it again. Yes, I do. (laughs) But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with something. I recently came across this amazing website called Beautiful Feet. No, really, it's okay. Uh, It's called Beautiful Feet. It's based on the Bible. It's okay. It's not dodgy. Um, it's called Beautiful Feet, run by a couple in the States who've made it their mission to research and record world revivals throughout the years. Now, so far, they've gone back to 1600. They've gone back to uh, an early Scottish revival of Irvine, the so-called Stuarton revival. I have never heard of it, but it's amazing. I've been reading about it. And it, they take it right up to the Indonesian revival which started in around 2010 which is also an absolute treat to read and it's also still going on by the way Indonesian revival uh, and I counted just just from their research so far they have recorded 77 revivals in 385 years now I'm not a maths genius But I've managed to work out on my calculator that that means an average of one revival somewhere in the world every five years. And they haven't even got them all down yet. One revival every five years, which means that God answers our prayers for revival all the time. He does. It's just that it doesn't always happen here, but it happens where it needs to happen. And God's in charge of that. He answers our prayers for revival, and he's going to answer our prayers for revival in this time in an, in an unprecedented way. It's not just going to be pockets of revival. It's going to be an outpouring like the world has never seen before. I believe that. I believe we're living in those days where God is touching the nations. He is the God of the nations. That's where we started this series by saying he is The God of the nations. And the God of the nations is going to move in a way like you have never seen or heard of before. The people from previous revivals are going to be jealous of the revival that is coming and wish that they had lived long enough to experience the outpouring that is coming in our days. I believe that. Please don't stop praying for revival. But I want to ask you, to not ask for yourself this time. Because I think there's something about that where we say, Lord, I want to see a revival and we want to be connected to it in some way. No, ask for the future generations. Ask for our young people. Ask for our children. But at the same time, let's offer ourselves because it begins with me. It begins with you. Say, Lord, begin a revival in me. Start by confessing your own sin. Start by dealing with some of that. Start by offloading some of that. And stop sinning. (laughs) And start praying and asking God to move. Start with me. Give me, Lord, my own personal revival. And then start with us. Lord, start a move in Jubilee, in our church here at this time. Do a move in Solihull, Lord, the West Midlands, and let's go for the UK. We need to pray for the UK at the moment. There's some big things being decided today. We need God to move in an amazing and unprecedented way. But, Lord, the world, we need you to move in the whole world. Father, start with us if you want to, but cover the whole world. But start with somebody else, that's okay, but do it, Lord. Move in our day, we pray, for the sake of the future generations that are to come. We need to pray again, but this time we need to pray with a bigger vision, a bigger concept of what God can do in our day. Let's agree with heaven, say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, Lord, until he comes. Come again, we need another move of God. We need a revival.